Hello, one and all! Welcome to another thrilling episode of Adventuring Academy, the podcast where we talk about all things tabletop and how to run awesome adventures at your table for your friends. My name is Brendan Lee Mulligan. I'm your humble dungeon master. With me today, our guest, oh my goodness, are we so delighted and so honored to have this guest with us today. You know her and love her as uh, the YouTuber who runs the channel Monarchs Factory, uh, which is actually a delightful pun on her last name, uh, where she covers house rules, homebrews, and her general approach to D&D &D and TTRPGs from a GM's perspective focused around the mythology and folklore that inspired the setting. She is also the writer, producer, and star of the web series Wolfgang. Please welcome Australian dungeon master and mythology expert, Dale Kingsman! Woo! Woo! <laughs> you, you made me sound so fancy. I've been watching these em these episodes come out, and you've got like awesome person after awesome person. I was like, I was getting worried. I was, how's he gonna find anything to say about me? Oh, this is Dale. She makes videos about D and D sometimes. <laughs> Uh, listen, the, the CV is impressive because of the person who crafted it through their uh, their lived life. Uh, oh, so congrats, congrats to you. Um, uh, Dale, uh, uh, Monarchs Factory, Kings Mill. Very, very clever. We love you it. Got it. Yeah, we yeah. love to see it. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> very good. Um, uh, Monarchs Factory is an incredible resource. Uh, that in my opinion of the of the kind of like like here in adventuring academy we are very much i think a conversation discussion podcast that just happens to be between people who run games and therefore we kind of like meditate on a lot of theory uh monarch factory is an incredible resource of like to the point awesome tips tools tricks great advice for running the game it's it's it is honestly like a, an intimidating breadth and spectrum of like of just like great tactical advice which is like here at adventuring academy we have i think we have great advice but the advice tends to again be very philosophical and monarch Spectre does such a great job of being like try this in your game it will be fun do it the next time and like awesome tips tricks and tools um what was the genesis of the channel for you like like how soon after you had been like a hobbyist within tabletop spaces uh did you start uh start the channel and start crafting these videos aha uh -huh. well that okay so that's an interesting question because i actually so i i come from a background in, I, I studied acting at uni. Mm -hmm. um, and I was so frustrated with the teaching there. Um, Cause it was, it was very old school. It was very, this is the way we did it. So that's the way that you have to do it. And I was like, but we've got new media. We've got like all this brand new stuff. Why aren't we acknowledging that? And like utilizing that. Um, so I ended up that, that happened to coincide with actually the Geek and Sundry Vlogs channel was holding auditions and I decided to audition for that with, um, I was like, what's my nerdy subject? And one day I was having lunch with a friend and I was like, that reminds me of this story from mythology and just rattled it off. And she was like, okay, Dale, sure, whatever. And did not care. And I was like, oh, I'm a geek, I forgot. Um, so I ended up auditioning with, uh, with, with mythology videos where I just retell stories from Greek mythology and kind of point out the absurdities. Um, and so I started there working with Geek and Sundry and then like three, four years down the line, I I'd started playing D&D &D probably four years ago now properly. Um, and I just saw a bunch of people like, oh, how do we do overland travel? And I was like, oh, I was actually just working on that and I need a video this week. Here's my video on D&D. &D. And 
people wanted more of that. And so it was just a total accident falling into making videos about D and D um, from a completely different YouTube background. And and now, I mean, hey, it's it seems to be working, which is nice. No kidding. Well, that's honestly what I love about the channel too is that it really offers tangible ways to improve your game, right? It's like it, it going in and taking a part of gameplay that can be often like overlooked or slapdash and being like, okay, we have this element of the game, overland travel. The odds that you run a campaign and don't use this are zero. Like you will have some, probably have some element of this in your game, but it's not necessarily one of those things that, um, gets a lot of attention and focus from DMs, especially as they're beginning, right? So going into these different areas that can maybe feel intimidating to people or they can feel like, oh, I haven't really put a lot of thought or effort into that. And what I love, again, about the ethos of the channel is so much of the time it is like, no matter what element of the game you're tackling, you're like, here's a way to make this even more fun. Here's a way to customize this. Here's a way to mod this out. What's an experience that we haven't seen overland travel provide before? What's something we haven't seen traps or whatever do before? Um, uh, that really encourages, I think, more so than just giving the tools, this idea of, are you using every element of your game to tell the story you want your game to tell? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I think it's interesting because there is a part of me that almost wants to connect that back to your background in like folklore and mythology, which is all about the idea of everything in a story wraps up into the rest of the story. Um, let's talk about that for a second, because that's actually something that I think we share in common. My mom was a student of Irish Celtic pagan mythology, and she studied Arthuriana so and Celtic languages. My mom started, my, my mom did her, she has a, a PhD in fantasy, basically. She did her um, PhD on sort of, and not entirely Arthurian stuff, but she looked at genre in fantasy and how it plays on expectations and Arthurian thing. Yeah. So, hey, our moms are both cool. <laughs> they really are. My, my, yeah, very, very cool. Um, so uh, uh, growing up in that, um, I know for me, it was just like, ensconced in that i think i think my dad when i was growing up got really worried he called my mom because she was like away on a trip somewhere and he, he was like he's like brennan has been pretending to be sir gareth of orkney for three days are we worried is this a problem do we call somebody and my mom was like he's fine you know like is he eating great he's taking a bath great good 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 like we're all good um uh growing up in that like um is that something that you just, that was like the the air you were breathing? Or even as a kid, did you take particular fascination with that as you were growing up? I mean, I guess I did. I never really noticed that I was doing it because, you know, I, I was very into fantasy as, as a kid. I was convinced I was going to be a writer. I was like, I'm going to be an author. I'm going to be C.S. Lewis. Um, and so, you know, I love that fantasy stuff, but I think it tied into mythology without me even realizing. Like my brother always played um, Age of Mythology on the computer and I was that annoying little sister hanging around over his shoulder and he'd, he'd be reading every single indexed in entry that's like here's who Agamemnon is and I didn't want to read it but it was the only thing on the screen and he was playing so I read it um and then over time you know just pulling out books of of mythical creatures or I can remember there's mom swears that she didn't know much about mythology and that she doesn't 
know the stories like I do. And maybe that's true now, but I have the most distinct memory of one day, we were already kind of running late for school, uh, like I'd missed the bus or something, so mum was going to have to drive me. Mm -hmm. And then we ended up even later because mum was like, no, here's the story of the Battle of Marathon. (laughs) Let me tell you. (laughs) you about Pheidippides. Let me tell you about the tactics they used in the battle and how they... (laughs) I have the clearest memory of it. Um, And so I was very late to school, but I learned an important lesson about Pheidippides in the Battle of Marathon. Um, So, you know, it it really was just not not like a thick layer of all that I was interested in, but it was always present um, and always sort of played into the way that stories were told around me. Because I suppose even C.S. Lewis, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, little elements of him throwing in sort of Greek flavor, very sort of um, Southern European uh, mythological. Yeah, sort of... it's very interesting to look back at that stuff now and see all the effects of those mythologies on it. Like L. Frank Baum writing Oz, then later told like the adventures of young Santa Claus within that same sort of like cosmology. And like, obviously there's a lot of Greek myth in Narnia, which is like an extremely Christian. It's a very funny Christian allegory because it's like the lion is Jesus. There's also Greek gods that are here to help Jesus. And then there's two beavers named Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and that you can kind of go either way with. So many layers, you know, (laughs) of the fantasy. You've got the really high fantasy, like, fancy stuff, and then you're like, I also, it's for kids. There are some talking beavers. Like, it's fine. Well, that's always the funny thing about any kind of allegory that you want at all. Like, like, anytime you're working in genre fiction, there's always the danger of, like, you know, what Batman represents is being arrested in the cycle of grief and it's about wrestling with that and then mr fantastic is like what if you could stretch and that (laughs) you you go like some of the literary analysis here um uh but i definitely like agree in terms of that thing of growing up in that in a very mythology soaked environment and again mythology is such an interesting because because you have mythologies where you realize these are actually the belief systems of cultures that did exist. You read like the Norse sagas, you read like, uh, uh, and you go like, oh, this is, and, but then you're also like, but this was, this was, this was their beliefs, but it was also written down by Christian monks. So there's that element. And then you get to other stuff where it's like, this was never fully a religious system. Like the Arthur legends were legends as they were being told, but it's still folklore all the way down to like, kind of epic history where you go like, ooh, has this been embellished over time? Growing up in that, like, all those stories, uh, uh, did you ever have that moment of like, um, I guess the, this moment that I encountered growing up as well, when you realize like, oh, this is like not every, like if you mention Lulamfada and the Dagda and Balor One-Eye, people might not know who you're talking about. Um, that was like age 10 for me. <laughs> it's like this is not this is not going over well in the room I did have that kind of a moment but I'm trying to work out when exactly it would have been because there was you know there's that progression where you're talking about oh yeah Pegasus and the Minotaur and everyone knows what you mean they're they're like into it as well because it's the monsters and whatever and you you get up to oh Theseus and Hercules and Perseus and everyone still kind of get kind of gets it and then you you start getting towards Agamemnon and you start getting (laughs) And, and people are like, wait, who? Menelaus? No, I don't know. Who that, you know? Um, and I feel like there was a moment, and it's odd because it's not even like 
in terms of my trajectory with mythology and my study of it, which, by, and by the way, I feel like I should mention, I'm, I am an amateur when it comes to mythology. You know, I feel like I know a lot, but I'm definitely not a mythologist by any means. Um, but no, there was a point, I can remember I was um, in a Toastmasters speech competition because I was really cool um, in seventh grade um, when I was like, what, what am I going to do my, my final speech about for this competition? I'm going to do it on the Greek gods and a comparison and say that Athena is my favorite, which um, a lot of that speech was getting into some nitty gritty details that no one cared about. Everyone was like, what? okay, I sure, I guess. That's fine. Um, but it's also just odd to me because now I look at it and I'm like, Athena's the what? Why did I? None of the Olympians are good. So it was definitely like this midpoint in in terms of me learning things because I still thought that any of the Olympians could be a good guy. <laughs> oh, I love uh, First of all, to echo what you said before, I feel the exact same way that anytime I, like I talk about this stuff because I find it interesting, but also want to give the thing of like, to the degree that I know about mythology, I know about mythology compared to other people that spent 10 years working at an improv comedy theater. That <laughs> is the, let's take that as the sample pool, not actual experts. This yeah, is, yeah, that's it. Um, but it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And there is I, th that thing in, in folklore that I love too of the, um, I don't know why this just crossed my mind, but there was that thing of, uh, uh, in terms of like, those old like Greek and Norse and stuff like that. I was reading the uh, the prose Edda, right? Um, uh, and best Edda. Best Take Edda. Take that poetic Edda. <laughs> <laughs> uh, reading it, and it's very funny that the whole that the, in within those sort of like European pantheons of like the, these like bad gods, these gods that are like nasty and cruel. There's a moment in that Edda where Odin is talking to Thor. And they're having a fight, and Thor literally says to Odin when he recognizes Odin's been like tricking him, and uh, he says something like, "You are the god that oft gave luck to worser men," meaning like, Odin, Ooh. I hate you because you let bad guys win. And it's one of the only, it's one of the things that made me like Thor because Thor's <laughs> like, I root for the good guys, and you, my dad, often make bad guys win, and I don't, and you suck, man. Um, it's so wild, satisfying. Still satisfying. <laughs> Wild tangent, um, but the uh, uh, go, so um, myth mythological upbringing going. When I say mythological upbringing, it makes it sound like we grew up in Olympus or yes. in. Oh, yes. I am a demigod. <laughs> uh, but a lot of like ensconced in mythology and folklore, go to university for acting, which I think is very similar. I, I went for screenwriting for filmmaking stuff, but going for kind of creative uh, pursuits. Um, uh, what initially, so were you already a performer by the time you first started playing tabletop? Ye yes, I want to say yes. I think I was, yeah. I, so I went to a performing arts high school as well, uh, which is where the transition from, I'm going to be an author, I'm going to be C.S. Lewis, turned into, oh, people, I, I get to be in front of everyone and they're all paying attention to me. This is <laughs> excellent. Um, but, <laughs> but I can remember the moment, it was like, it was such a slow burn getting into RPGs. So I started out on like play by post forum RPGs. Mm -hmm. I don't know if, if you ever had any experience with those, but it was just, you know, there's, there's these free forums that you can set up online back in the, back in the olden days of dial up. Um, and 
my cousin got me into it. She was like, you like writing, you'll enjoy this. And you make up your own character from like X-Men and, and you, you post what your character is doing. And then the next person replies with their post and what they're doing. Um, and so I had that kind of role play basis and then didn't know that tabletop RPGs existed until my older brother, who he, he, like his closest friend group were all this games club that would get together and play stuff. And he would explain these games to me and I had no understanding of how they worked, but it sounded fun. It was like, and then you roll the dice, but then, and then I fell over because my back flip didn't work. And I was like, Oh, that's nice. Um, <laughs> but, but one day he was, he was preparing to run his first ever game and it was a game of rogue trader. Um, and he, he wanted to get some practice in. So he helped me make a character. I think it was someone from the Adeptus Mechanicus. I don't really fully understand what that means, but I'm pretty sure that that's what it was. Um, and then I tried to play and he was like, and you have to get to the library. What do you do? And I was like, I, I don't know where the library is. And I like climbed a building trying to find, like, I had no idea how to play. No idea. He got frustrated. Stop playing with me. And then it was a super long road to actually get to, to any point. It was like a bit of Rogue Trader, a bit of the Iron Kingdoms RPG, a bit of Paranoia in the middle there somewhere. Um, Pathfinder eventually was where I got my start because I kept saying to my friends at uni in the acting course, I was like, I think, I think that we would all really like playing RPGs together. And they were all like, yeah, yeah, we would. We should do that. But nothing ever came of it. And then I had that moment that I'm sure that every DM has had where they go, well, if no one's going to run it, I guess it has to be me. I'm going to be the one running the game. Uh, and I couldn't get them to all agree to a time. And I used the power of guilt. The power of guilt to uh, to say, it's my birthday. And all I want to do is to play oh. Pathfinder with you guys. So I'm going to run Path. Please play it for my birthday. And then got them hooked. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I. That so I did. I did have that acting background, but I also had that sort of my my understanding of RPGs from very early on came from a written form of it, uh, which was a lot more like prepare the stuff and then wait for a response. Which for the youngsters who don't know, yeah, listen, we had forums, we had like like RP post forums. I was doing that. I I there were um, we I did a lot of AIM AOL Instant Messenger role playing. Oh yeah, fully free form, no rules, just we're we're rolling along, right? Occasionally someone would be like a GM, other times no, but it was great. I mean, like that's a great bit of practice to remove assist to do it and remove a system. Which I will say, the thing with free form role playing is that. It has always worked best when it's with people that I really trust and know well. And you because there's because there's you you remove any kind of like conflict arbitration, which is what the dice can be, right? Of like yeah. two different collaborators in a game with dice can say, I think this should work. And another one says, I think this shouldn't. And uh there's a resolution mechanic there, you just roll the yeah, dice. You have a, a whole separate thing that no one can blame. Exactly. Fate chose. Fate chose what happened, exactly. Um, but definitely have a background as well in that freeform role playing, that fully text, fully narrative role playing. So super fun. Um, uh, and so diving into that first Pathfinder game and diving into uh, uh, these sort of early like uh, games that you were running, and so, so definitely I feel your pain as someone who's like, <laughs> if I want a game to happen, it's got to be me. And for people listening to this, people watching this. <laughs> If you've been if you've been ringing that bell for a game, a game, a game, and it hasn't materialized, 
it's That's it might it. be you've been might, called you have been called to a service of a of a force greater than yourself and you must mm. heed the call the call to adventure um <laughs> so within that within those early games you were running um uh how much homebrew made its way into those early games that you started running because i think again that for so many people they get there's a f feeling of the horrible weight of these games with so many rules and so much yada yada just like a lot of stuff weighing down on people so for someone in your position who has this big background in storytelling and performance and all this stuff how quick did you feel like you had a facility with the game to be like got it i have my own adventures let's go I think I was that annoying, but I didn't even wait for, to, to have a facility with the game. It was, I can remember, so again, my brother was running the Iron Kingdoms game that we dabbled with for a bit. And immediately I was like, I don't understand why Ogren can't be wizards. Or it was something like that. Yeah. And I was like, I want to change it so that they can be wizards. Immediately I was like, we got to change the rules. And he was like, no, please don't. Um, and so by the time I was at Pathfinder, like I remember I ran, it was with the the beginner box, which to me is still one of the best, like opening, just in terms of really getting people hooked in one session. It's like, it's like four hours worth of game. And it's literally, you fight some goblins and there's a puzzle where you get a gem from a trap and, you know, there's this magic thing happening and then you fight a dragon. Um, so it's, it's very compact, not necessarily uh, it doesn't make sense narratively so much, but it's just a great taster for people. But I can remember pulling out the character sheets from that and going, that'll be confusing for people, get rid of it. I'm gonna change this to that. I'm changing all of these floating modifiers because I don't want to remember them. I don't want to learn them, so get rid of them. So it was like straight away. I think my copy of the um, Pathfinder core book has like pen all the way through it where I've just been changing things immediately. <laughs> that is so fucking cool. That is so cool. It, there is a there's a very real impulse I think people have. Well, what's interesting here is this, right? Recognizing that you have these like paper or PDF copies of these rule books, and that all of these rules are completely unenforceable, and you know they're again. As I've said before on the podcast, the like the, Jeremy Crawford is not going to teleport into the room to tell you you're doing D and D wrong, right? Whatever works for your table is is what you should be doing. But again, you know, in in real life, it, it's very funny because I think that there's a big uh, a lot of people struggle with an impulse of just not wanting to ever not follow the rules, right? Um, uh, but having that that little engine switch on in your brain that goes like actually ignore like I, it's one of those weird things where i think it's very hard for a lot of people to see the spirit of the law for the lack of a better word right and when all you're looking at is the letter of the law it becomes a lot more it, you're less vulnerable if you go well this is what the book said to do so this is what we're going to do right and the idea what are, if you can think of pointers like what is it within a dungeon master's mind that allows them to start going yes this is the letter of the law the spirit of the law behind it is all of us having fun like what are what does that feel like that compass is internally that allows you to go like i know what a rule is trying to accomplish and i'm just gonna walk around it if i need to to get to that good stuff on the other side right yeah, 
because I, I, I do feel like there's there's such a thing, particularly in terms of um, homebrewing. If you're on Reddit trying to get into homebrew stuff, there's such um, a, a belief in the idea of you have to learn the rules first before you break them, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think I think that's that's the rule for a lot of it, like poetry. You want to understand how to write poetry according to the rules before you can break the rules. Um, but I just, I don't know. I think there's also something to be said for just following the rabbit. Like you'll be reading something and there's, there's gonna be something in your head that goes, eh, that's, a bit, that's a bit stupid. Like, or, or I, don't, I don't love that. And And if you just, just go with it. Just follow that rabbit <laughs> somewhere. And and I think honestly, it's a matter of um, you know, write your own rules. Sorry, one of my ears is falling out and it's oh, getting no. caught in my hair like a like a bug. <laughs> um, no, it's it's just, like a bug. Um, it's it's just you know, don't be scared of making rules that don't work. You know, you you look at it and you go, I'm gonna scrap all the floating modifiers and do my own thing. Um, and whatever you come up with, it might not work, but it's, I guess it's a little bit of that play by post. It's you do something on your own over here. This is your fun bit as the DM making some stuff up, you know, make design some new rules and then you put them in front of your players. And for that session, you find out whether it works or whether it doesn't. And some bits of it might work and some bits of it won't, but you can go back and you can cross it out later and you can change it again and again. Um, and slowly, slowly figure out what you enjoy and what works for the group. That feels really like the heart of the matter to me is the idea that for a lot of DMs that are thinking about homebrewing or making their own adventures, they're thinking of like, well, if I make it and it's not balanced, Wizards of the Coast is never gonna publish it. And you're like, you need this to be fun for your five best friends, right? Like, it, and, like and you know your five best friends as well. You know them really well. You know what kind of things they're gonna like. Um, you know, completely, again, that first Pathfinder game, having my friends play and realizing they hated the, the old school negative hit, hit points. You know, it was just, you hit zero and they were like, well, I'm dead. And I was like, you're not dead, actually. You gotta count backwards now. And they were like, that's even worse. Why can't I just be dead? <laughs> um, and taking those little bits of information and just you know, threading them through, making your own game. I totally agree. And I think that there's a, a real beauty and a fun to the idea of like, you can tweak things as you move forward. You homebrew a monster, you homebrew a magic item. Like I never fudge roles, but I have definitely been in situations where I've made, not ever really on Dimension 20, but, but in a lot of home games, I've had moments where it's like, all right, I got a bunch of 19th level characters. Let's throw this monster at them. Oh no, I made that monster way too powerful. <laughs> and then behind the scenes, I'm. it's not that I'm fudging roles, but it's that I'm going like, oh, a piece of design that I made that I never play tested and never did anything else with um, has maybe been designed in a way that is not perfectly balanced. I'm gonna make some tweaks here and there uh, even sometimes mid combat to go like, cool, I like how much damage this thing is doing, but I can tell that this battle is gonna drag out forever. I'm gonna knock this hit point total down a little bit. Behind the screen, I'm gonna knock it down a little bit. Or even, you know, I think every DM has had that thing too of like, you know, PCs have clearly won a battle. There's a few little stragglers around. Those stragglers might maybe be easier to hit just so we can start to wrap this up. <laughs> Like, yeah, we felt the vibe go down. Everyone's very happy they've won. So let's just, let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I fully, fully agree with that. And I think too that like, there is a moment and, and 
this is I, there's a moment in all of these kind of tabletop games where when you play them long enough, and honestly, sometimes even if you haven't played them very long, one thing I would recommend for people to do is to try to have that Matrix moment where you know where Neo like is in the Matrix and he's fighting the agents, and then it whoop, it just becomes all numbers, right? And you go like, oh. I'm not trying to dodge bullets. This is like a piece of information, right? I think that happens with rules a lot because what, what games like D&D do is they have a rule set, right? And then they put a lot of flavor on top of it. And that can be confusing for people. Like they'll go, okay, a rogue has sneak attack and sneak attack is called sneak attack. So in your head, you're like, I only add it if I'm doing a sneaky attack. And then you read the rules and you go like, actually, this is just an extra D6 of damage that I add under a lot of conditions. I add it if I'm attacking with advantage. I add it if I'm within five feet of an ally who's fighting. And then you go like, is this actually sneaky? Not, it doesn't have to be. Right. Like, and and it's that it's the it's the importance of the nuance of language and the titles that you give things and and the flavor text that you put with them. That really, I mean, I suppose it goes back to what you were saying about like the spirit of the law. That's another thing is is finding the places where that flavor text merges with the mechanics in a way that really makes, I think the best example of it might honestly be like Magic the Gathering cards when you get the flavor text that really, like you've just read the mechanics and it's like, oh, and you summon X creatures who are, you know, whatever it is. Um, and then the flavor text underneath will say, oh yes, the summoner did the blah, blah, blah. But whatever it is, it it merges these things so that you take this mechanical thing that you understand and you go, oh, I understand what that is representing. But it, it's almost like it starts from flavor and then has the mechanics laid on top of it rather than the other way around, which can get tricky, which is like your your sneak attack situation. Well, and that's the thing too, for DMs that want to homebrew and want to go like, hey, I know when rules are fun or not fun. Like there used to be rules about confirming critical hits, right? Ooh. And that's the thing is, I'm like, if you think I'm gonna look at a player that just hit that nat 20 and tell them there's a chance they don't crit, you are dreaming, my friend. Mm, Under I, no, yeah. Nothing met, like encouraged animosity between me and a DM before I started running the game. Like me rolling a d20 and then saying, mm, but you have to roll again to make sure that you actually got a critical hit. And I was like, 17, screw you, I did get a crit. <laughs> But like instantly, I was so angry about it every time I could never do it. No, a hundred percent. And there's a lot of that like pruning of the rules and finding ways to be like, okay, does this rule actually make any, is anyone really having fun with this? Is this really adding to stuff? Like, like, is there another way to go about this? Is there a way to streamline this? And I think that, um, uh, one of the things back again in like 3.5 was like there used to be separate skills for hiding and moving silently. And you would go, well, like a diplomacy skill isn't being nice and also being persuasive. Like why, like why did we yeah, randomly- diplomacy gets split up into ethos, logos. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. You're like, why does this? Why does the guy who does sweet talking get to have just one skill? I gotta have two to be. And also, yeah. what in your mind, like, what is a character with a high hide and a low move silently, like a cat burglar covered in pans? Like that's, like, why? It's just Peter from from uh, Hunger Games. 
<laughs> Painted to blend in. Um, but I suppose again, it's it's that um, that line between simulate is this a game of simulation or is this a game of verisimilitude? And I mean, I, I see people you know get a little caught up in what verisimilitude means, but I think the the point of verisimilitude, as you know, is is truthiness. It's not it's not actuality. It's not a replication of reality. Because if you want a replication of reality, there are things that do it better. This is an abstraction, and part of that abstraction isn't just how do we make real life into dice rolls. It's also how do we um, get the impression of what feels true. So even though we know that like cutting cross country is going to take longer because you're you know walking through the scrub in the forest or whatever, that's going to take longer than following the road. But it feels true in the game to say, do you want to cut across country and it'll take you half as much time? Or do you want to follow the road, which is safer, but it'll take longer? You know, that those sorts of things, that level of abstraction is is truthiness. It's very similitude versus simulation. A million percent. I, I love the way you put that. And again, that truthiness, this actually, I used to, this used to be my little soapbox that I got on all the time when I was teaching improv, when I was, when I was uh, teaching at the Upright Citizens Brigade, I would over and over again, disagree with my fellow teachers and who would be, who would talk about scenes being realistic. And I would say, you have got to get rid of the concept of realism on stage a hundred percent. The 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 first time that you cheat out, that you go like, Bradley, when did you get here? You, it's not real anymore. It's just not yeah. real. We can't ever get to real. We're mm. on a stage with hundreds of strangers breathing in a dark room, all looking at us. It's not real. It can be truthful. Like we can get to truthful. That's um, it. Uh, and I think that that delineation is so important, and it gets to a big moment of, to so all these important moments of like, what are the rules you should mess with and which are the rules you shouldn't? And it's it's an interesting thing because learning, having the intuition and insight to know what can get boiled down, right? When you're looking at something like combat, it can be helpful to do that Neo Matrix thing and just go, we are rolling dice we want high rolls, we don't want low rolls because that's representing our successes in these moments. And the bonuses represent the fact that our characters should succeed more often at the things they're good at, right? Um, and so it's an, it's an awesome combination of luck and strategy where it's like, hey, if I make decisions to try and do the things I know I succeed at more of the time, or I get creative to take advantage of things in the environment or other opportunities that make themselves available, we have a higher likelihood of success. Boy, howdy, aren't we smart and good? We did it, right? Um, but it's interesting to notice like in terms of what gets homebrewed, like what things are essential. And with these games, I often think there are a smaller number of things that are essential than people recognize. Like with something like D&D, armor class, hit, point, hit points, proficiency bonus. And it's kind of like, as long as you don't mess with those three things or, or the people's ability scores too much, you can kind of play around with all the rest because the only thing that ever break, and what's funny is that some of the things that break the game are built into the game. People, you, you go on Reddit and see homebrewing, people are like, this is game breaking. And you go like, my man, by the time an average wizard is 15th level, they won't die if you push them out of an airplane. Like, let's talk yeah. about world breaking. Like, 
The average falling damage from maximum height is like 60 points of damage. If you have more than 60 hit points, you could truly you you no, yeah, you could just be like no parachute later and like out of the plane. Like that's that's why. So when you're saying like verisimilitude, like we're we are not going for a reality engine. We're going for yep. truthiness. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, 5e in particular, it was so exciting to see it come out and sort of start to grasp how that system was built because it is particularly in comparison to a lot of games that came before. Since then, we've got, you know, uh, a lot of stuff that is doing more simplification. But 5e is so streamlined in so many ways that the absence of basically any floating modifiers um, is was huge. And they really have pulled it back to a point where you can have fun homebrewing it's like such it's such a perfect playground to start homebrewing because you can look at anything and be like well i'm gonna change it and it'll probably be fine um you know you you make if you make a homebrew class um and and people are like wow that's way too powerful i mean as long as it's you know just as it, as long as everyone in the group is having as much fun as each other i feel like that doesn't really matter particularly for the dm i i whenever i see people commenting oh well this is bad because it'll be hard for the dm to deal with i'm like they're running the game. They they can do whatever they want. Like, if I need to make the combat harder, I can just add more bad guys. I can I can make the bad guys stronger. I can deal with um, you know, overpowered PCs. I just want to make sure that everyone's having equal amounts of fun as each other in the party. I 100% agree. And I think too, it's very funny. Again, the, the critical voices that tend to create homebrew is so fun. It's so fun to get something handmade by your DM. It's so fun to get something that was like, I thought you would. The joy I feel when I make magic items for my PCs is an unrivaled joy of like, oh, I hope they think this is cool. It's like giving Christmas gifts. And there is an element of people that that tend to chime in and be like, DM's gonna have a hard time with that. That's a little bit broken. You might need to nerf that. That's a little bit of OP. And you just, what's interesting is you just wanna go like, number one, um, like you're saying, like is is balance an important thing at the table? Maybe, maybe not. There was a whole there's a whole thing of of these things called gestalt characters that I've talked about before on the podcast. But the whole idea of a gestalt character is it takes the best offerings of two different classes and all their class features and isn't multi-class. So if you're a tenth level gestalt wizard fighter, you have proficiency in all wizard things, proficiency in all fighter things, you have the good saving throws from fighter, the good ones from Hell wizard. Yeah. And but what's so fascinating about it is in the rules for them, they tell you this thing, which like think about that. Like anyone would say, whoa, that's broken. Don't let a Gestalt character in the same party as these other whatevers. Within the within the rules of Gestalt characters, what they say is a Gestalt character is roughly the same power level as a character two levels lower than them. And people are like, what? How can that be? Shouldn't a 12th level wizard fighter, Gestalt wizard fighter, be as powerful as a 12th level fighter and a 12th level wizard put together. And you go, no, no way. That wizard fighter or whatever, they still only get one action per round. They're still being played by just one flawed human being who might make a tactical error. Like our conception of overpowered is is not really taking into, into account how hard it is to really throw the game out of whack given all these other constraints, right? Um, mm -hmm. And again, I also, the last thing I'll say is just that, like, if you were to take rage and fireball out of the system 
and offer them as homebrews on Reddit, they would get ripped apart. People would be like, "You get to take half damage from everything. That's crazy." I, I I feel bad about doing that voice now. That's not that's not what Reddit sounds like. I'm sorry, Reddit. I love you. Don't title me, please. We love we love Reddit, but just to say that that this is there's there's not a lot of deep dive homebrew building happening on Twitter. Um, so you know, um, uh, uh, but again, like much to your point, like it is. I think that like take those swings in your home game, make that homebrew magic item, make that homebrew subclass, make that homebrew spell. If it's overpowered, it's probably not gonna be overpowered on the level that's actually gonna affect your campaign. And if it is, maybe you that's change a, it. You can you change can it. Change you just change it. You just go like, hey, I kind of messed up. That's that's way too good. Let's let's scale that back. Um, because again, you know, it's funny, I had to, to uh, my brother and my dear friend, M. Veselak, who's the creator of um, Wickedness, which is an awesome indie tabletop game, uh, play my long running home games, Wizard and Sorcerer. And they had this spell called Star Mantle from 3.5, which made them immune to damage from weapons. And... <laughs> And I read it because because each of them had found a way to get evasion. And it was this loophole of if, if you combine evasion with this reflex save afforded by Star Mantle. And I looked at it for and I it was just we played for like a year where this was working and I was like, I don't I don't know what I can do. And then eventually I did a deep dive and found out that, oh, actually with the wording of this thing, and I called them up to give them this thing of like nerfing it, and it was so friendly because I actually was like I said, I have great news. I found a way to make battle fun for you all again. Because the, the truth is, like, honestly, I think that, that by the time something actually becomes overpowered or a problem, you know who's going to be the most upset about it? The player. Like, the player with that is going to be like, oh, this broke the game in a way that it's not as much fun. Like, risk is fun for players. So that's yeah. my... Um, uh, that's my rant about overpowered. It was a good rant. It was a good one. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I wanted to also jump in and talk about um, uh, at building, sort of building your campaigns, building stuff at home for your players. Um, uh, when you are doing session prep, when you're doing your preparation for your campaign world, um, how much like what do you find your breakdown is of time you spend on the mechanical components of the game versus the time you spend on the narrative components of the game? And has that changed at all as you've played more and more? Um, I think I've gotten faster at all of it, which is nice. Uh, well, maybe not faster. I, I sort of spend, I, I let it drip feed into my, my thoughts for a long time ahead of time. And then I start I, I think it all comes down to genre a lot of the time, you know, I'm like, okay, but what genre, like I'll have all these sporadic notes of things that I want to happen. I'm like, hey, what was I prepping the other day? I was prepping, um, it was some overland travel and I was like, okay, but there are going to be, oh, I hope no one watches this now. That, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. This, this isn't coming out for a while. Um, <laughs> there's, there's overland travel and there are these bounty hunters who are, who are looking for them. And, you know, I, I was like, okay, but it's going to take this many days and I want it to be exciting. But everything I was doing, all the bits that I wanted to happen, it kept feeling boring. And I was like, why isn't it working? And then I stopped and I realized that I hadn't considered the genre yet. And I was like, what genre is this? And I'm like, uh, it's probably halfway between like a, a frontier Western, you know, Pinkertons out looking for mm -hmm. the 
bandit or whatever. Um, and also the ring wraiths chasing the hobbits, um, specifically in the movies of Lord of the Rings, because, oh, don't you have some wonderful scenes in there? Um, and so I was like, okay, match those together. That's the genre. That's the feeling that I'm going for. Now I can finally work on the mechanics um, and then start like hitting the, the things that I will actually need for that session. So I'd say like, a long, long drip feed of finally figuring out the narrative. And then most of the like hardcore prep is actually mechanics. I love that. And I think too, I mean, that's the place I think you really should start because to me, every way that I think about the mechanics of the game does at the end of the day, boil back down to what is the emotional response that I'm hoping this is going to elicit from the players? That's exactly it. It's like, okay, do I want them to be a little bit freaked out? Do I want them to feel triumphant? Do I want, you know, what do I want this particular thing, what this scene needs to accomplish in terms of emotional response? How do I reflect that in the mechanics? Which is, I suppose, like that's that's a big place that you're going to end up homebrewing because doing the same thing for every single scene, you're going to get the same emotional response, which probably won't be much. Um, but, you know, if you're like, oh, this really needs to feel like a, a haunted house, how am I going to make it feel like a haunted house? Now I'm going to start messing with the movement mechanics. I'm going to start pulling in like the the survival mechanics for extreme temperatures, like, like the rooms getting really cold, you know, things like that. Pulling in um, unusual mechanics because that's how it reflects the the things your characters are feeling that's ah oh, it's the meat for me it's it's the the good stuff that i really hope to achieve i don't always manage to do it for every session but it's it's where i start it's that you know flavor text mechanics thing again i think that's i mean that makes a hundred percent sense to me and it's all about that idea of it is a tricky thing because uh, to go back it's about that marriage of the spirit of the law and the letter of the law we have a feeling we have a thing that we know we want to create that will be felt and ephemeral how do i get a bunch of plastic miniatures and plastic dice to do that how do i get make that feeling and what's so wild about it is it actually is more tangible i think than people realize like i don't know I've been playing this game for so long and it's something that I feel like people don't talk about a lot of like, like even different roles, different rule sets do actually conjure very different feelings. Like I was talking about this, honestly, this is like very recent. This is like a, a pretty recent revelation. I was talking to my brother about the idea of like, um, how different roles feel. And I was saying, we were saying something about like, that like, yeah, there's something about like spellcaster fights that just feels different. No matter how big an ogre gets, it always feels somehow more doable, but something about spellcasters. And we started trying to figure it out and we were like, there were, there was like two things. And it's like, number one, status effects don't hit you in a resource pool you have a lot of. If I have 200 hit points, it's hard for something swinging at me to scare me. I only have one um, uh, you know, wisdom ability score. And if you do a weird status effect that locks that down on me, all of a sudden I'm out of a thing I had. And the other thing too that he brought up that I thought was really smart was about um, saving throws. And he was like, saving throws feel different than any other role you make. He's like, players are only ever rolling dice to succeed. I'm rolling my attack, I'm rolling my skill check, I'm rolling my damage. And then it's this one thing where I get asked to pick up my beloved D20 
And the best I can hope for is for something bad not to happen. Yeah. And it creates a feeling of dread. So it's these things that, yes, it's mechanical, but it can create a feeling, right? Yeah, and, and the mechanics of it, like in terms of the, the physical, real-world mechanics of it is still the same. You're still picking up a D20, you're rolling it, and you're adding a, a static number to that. But it's the fact that it's happening um, out of turn, it's, it's happening on someone else's turn, that feels different. If you are the spellcaster, the fact that you don't have to roll something, the fact that you just, you it just happens. And that's such a, a powerful feeling because you're a spellcaster and it's just like you bend the world to your will. So it does have, even if, even if the physical mechanics stay the same, you, there are so many dials to play with to change the feeling that is, you know, that, that it elicits. Ugh. I love, I love home brewing. <laughs> I love it. I love home brewing. Uh, uh, we're gonna we're gonna uh, dive uh, into some questions, gang. Um, uh, we got some awesome questions here. Um, uh, bu -bu -bu. Uh, this first one comes to us from Mac. Thanks, Mac. Uh, Mac's question is: Whoa, you made such a cool expansion to Theros. Your subclass skills are incredible. I've been wanting to make more subclasses for my player characters since I think they're so cool and want to give them even more opportunities to be creative. How do you go about finding a good balance within a class to add on cool thematic subclass skills? You've got College of Tragedy, but how does that translate to skills and abilities in and out of combat, for example? Thanks. Oh, thank you, Mac. That made me feel really nice. Um, <laughs> Heroes and Villains of Theros, which um, I wrote with Jeremy Malul, um, was it was my first real foray into like designing subclasses because usually my homebrew is sort of you know um, sort of tertiary systems that you can put on top of the stuff that's already there. So this was the first time that I was really sitting down and trying to oh write subclasses, design subclasses, um, and. It was tricky, but I kind of, you know, you, you get back to that same thing that we've been talking about. It's like, what do I want this to do? And I, I went through and I wrote out all my ideas related to mythology of like, what feels like Greek myth rather than high fantasy, because, you know, 5e as a base is quite high fantasy. So comparing that genre <laughs> and then going, what do we not see in D&D? What do I want to see um, in Theros? And... Um, trying trying to to make them work and i was like you know we've got orpheus in in greek myth there's no way i'm not going to write a bard that is about tragedy that is like this this horrible and then i it, i ended up combining it with stuff that i knew from studying you know like aristotle and his his construction of tragic drama and taking those little bits and putting them all together um but i will say in terms of designing subclasses and making them um sort of more of a fit for the base game, so having to cut out all of all of my other homebrew um, and add it onto just the the game as it stands in the written material. Um, the thing that was most helpful was really going through all the subclasses that already exist and breaking them down and seeing what they do at what point. You know, at this stage. It should really be something to do with their skills. It should be something non-combat. This one is meant to be a defensive ability. This one, and just taking like stripping it down to the barest quality of like, oh well, clearly at this stage the warlock is meant to get a boost to their defense, and it's meant to be simple and straightforward, but it is defensive. And making something that fits that. Um, and there is, it's it's such a good framework. The scaffolding is is brilliant to build from. So so strip it back to its simplest form. Think about what you want it to do thematically 
in terms of genre, in terms of feeling that it elicits, all those things that we've just been talking about, and then using the, the scaffolding that's already there to, to build on was how I did it. Uh, that, the, the first of all, College of Tragedy sounds so goddamn cool. Uh, 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 Orpheus-based bard is, is just very, very rad. Um, so, and I think that what's interesting too here is like, for people who are interested in doing their own subclasses, I think there is something really, so like as someone who came from 3.5 and uh, D&D that had prestige classes, one of the things that me and my friends to this day make fun of in 3.5 is how goddamn weird these prestige classes get, where you're like green star adept, like initiate of the sevenfold veil. <laughs> and because, and the reason for that being that in published material, like one of one of the things that I think is a uh, how do I put this archetypal D and D classes, I think one of the the things that is successful about that design is you take something like a fighter, and classes are not all. Sometimes they are in like comedy shows, like Dimension Twenty, they are. But often characters shouldn't be necessarily be aware of their class, like. A character who is a fighter probably wouldn't be like, well, I'm a fourth level fighter. They'd be like, I'm a guy with a sword. I could be a knight. I could be a mercenary. I could be men at arms or whatever. Like I could be all these different things. And so there's a certain degree of design that I think works best in published material when it's as archetypal as possible. Because I know for me, when I get a prestige class that's like, this is the like, uh, the lavender scorpion fencer. It's from this, and you have this huge wall of flavor text of like the lavender scorpion fencers for a thousand years. They train in a water temple where they're not allowed to wear anything but shoes and underwear. And they have to, and you go like, okay, I'm going to look at what the class features are and I'll decide what this character is allowed to wear. Thank you very much. Right? So there's a certain degree in the published material of, I think there's a, a certain amount of success in being archetypal. What's cool about homebrewing subclasses is that you can get really weird and specific with your setting, right? Like if there's something within your setting of like, no, there's a specific correlation between wyverns and sorcery and these people that oppose them so they're themed around being immune to poison but also counterspelling magic it's like that's not something that would necessarily be broadly applicable to everyone's game but as we said before it's for your five friends that's it that's exactly it mm -hmm. uh the this idea of like subclass addressing specific campaign needs is one of i think the strengths of homebrewing your own subclass material. Um, and looking at the question again, uh, it's like, yeah, how do you go about finding a good balance within a class to add on cool thematic subclass skills? Um, there's one thing I've often messed around with is the idea of just taking a subclass from another class and being like, could you just smack this on another? Like, could I just take Battlemaster and smack that on Barbarian and that still kind of works, maybe? I kind of ended up doing that for the monk. I was like, okay, but what if a monk was a Barbarian though? <laughs> <laughs> what if that was a thing? Um, and that's, that's how I made it. And it's, it's also, you know what? I mean, the scaffolding is great. I stand by what I said about the scaffolding. Um, if you're trying to publish something and really get it to work for as many games as possible, that's great. In terms of just making a subclass that you think is dope 
I just give it awesome abilities. Make sure that you give it some awesome abilities sooner. Like if, if the highest level that they're going to get a subclass ability is going to be 17th level, you're never going to play to 17th level. Give the awesome ability to them at 12th. Like just, just shove it all down a little bit. Make sure they get awesome. But then you have to make something even more awesome, but not too powerful for 17th. You know, it's like have fun with it. Put in the things that you want. You know what you secretly want to give it. Give it those things. Then look at it all and go, did I go overboard? Let's scale it back a little. You know, like you can, you can throw them in and st you 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 got to get the clay there before you can shape it you know you have to write the essay before you can edit it you have to just shove in all the things that you want to shove in and then you can tweak it later i totally agree i think that there's that and again too it's like i i actually that that is a, a piece of advice that is so profound that we should i want to hit it again which is put the good ability at a lower level and honestly let's let's be real you look at the assassin rogue subclass, you look at the gloom stalker ranger subclass, you look at battle master fighter, Throw, giving someone 4d8 of extra damage and a range of combat maneuvers, letting someone do automatic crits on the first round of combat, these are not small potatoes abilities, right? Like these are quite good. And I, I, I you know, Different D, I think this is actually a sphere where I would say different DMs can have different philosophies around that, and that's totally fine. For me, I think, again, from that mythological background, what a subclass is always trying to do, in my eyes, is allow someone to be the archetype. Like, when I'm playing a character, I often want to be the archetypal mythological figure. I'm never coming at it from a place of, like, it would be cool to do, like, Paladin, but with poison damage. I'm not thinking about it in that kind of, like, Mecha mechanics first thing. I'm thinking like, here's a type of character that I envision in this setting genre, like you mentioned. Now, how do we make a unique set of mechanics that makes them really feel like they're good at doing that thing? Yeah. Um, and uh, damn, I love that. That's so cool. Uh, uh, minor tangent, because this is about subclasses. Uh, my little soapbox I'm gonna get on. I'm gonna get my little soapbox here for a second. Do it. If they if they do a D&D &D, uh, 6E, in addition to a host of other design things that need to be changed, uh, or honestly, even if I just was, if I was just going to make a, a ground-up uh, RPG system, Archer should be its own class, and I'll go to my grave saying it should be its own class. Because uh, oh. I mean, I suppose at the moment it's really just okay. You want to be an archer, but like. Do you want to be a ranger archer or a rogue archer or a fighter archer or, you know? To make a good archer, it's like you ba you basically need to have access to some ranger spells and then also have the arcane archer thing from, but which, even that's bonkers because it's like, here's the thing, right? It's like, if, you're, if we're going to talk about the universality of of let's say something like the paladin, which is like very specifically like paladin, like sort of this like Eurocentric holy knight kind of uh, hospital or whatever thing. Uh, obviously paladin can expand out to a lot of other cultures as well of like cultural God warrior figure. But let's talk about that universality versus archer, which is Every, everywhere. How many stories and myths and folklore are about art? It's, it's all of them. Gods and, of archery, you got it all. You know, there's literally gods who are like, my whole deal is bows and arrows. And the fact that the only way the system has come up to have archers is to have them mostly be magical, when it's like, I don't know, have we heard? Robin Hood, Ar Artemis, 
So I'll go to my grave. Also, because it's like when you make an archer, they always have too many hit points. That should be a D6 hit point class. Why do I got these hit points? I'm in the back. <laughs> no, name. it's so true. And I mean, on top of that as well, you get things like the subclass for hunter, for ranger, just in just in the PHP, is is like <laughs> you you you've got this whole thing that's clearly written for someone who is an archer. You have a bow, and you just want to be good with your bow. Here's a whole subclass about it, but they never made it literally about having a bow so they have to t like really carefully write everything so that it could work with a sword <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know how when you go hunting you bring your long sword i'm chasing boars down in the wood with a long sword trying to get them good grief uh well there, there, there's another <laughs> another little soapbox um uh uh love this this next one comes to us uh, from a little lost bean. Thanks, uh, a little lost bean. Oh, uh, a little lost bean. I hope you get found. I hope so too. Um, I love your vid on the Feywild and the idea of magic being supernatural slash the most natural. Uh, do you have any tips for introducing this concept or ways to show it in more mundane places in game world? Uh, this is so cool. Um, uh, well, for, for, for background and context uh, for folks, uh, um, communicate if you can this idea again of like the Feywild and the idea of supernatural versus like the most natural. Yeah, so um, I have very particular ideas about um, the Fey and how magic works that are kind of informed by, um, you know, Irish, Scottish folklore, Celtic folklore um, that, you know, it's, it's this I think it started when people started asking me whether my setting was high magic or low magic. And my answer is always it's pervasive magic, which is not a helpful answer for what they're asking. But I, I don't have an alternative because it's like magic is everywhere. It's in everything a little bit, but it's not necessarily accessible um, from, from a mortal perspective, if that makes sense. Um, so, you know, it's, it's like in folklore you'll get these stories about people who are walking through a field at night and if you if you walk through that particular field at night you just know that it's it's kind of inhabited by fairies it's got this crossover with the realm of fairy and if you try to cross that field at night you will never make it to the other side you'll just keep walking and and you'll you'll get lost you'll never whereas if you sit down and wait till dawn once you start walking in the daylight you'll be fine you know it's it's this this bizarre um blending kind of 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 realms of realities um that comes through and then the idea of the the supernatural that is the most natural is an idea that um i thought was mine and then one day i was reading an essay by tolkien called on fairy stories where he he literally says that phrase he's like fairies are supernatural in that they are the most natural they are super natural they are so natural that we'll never be able to understand them and we'll never be able to understand the world the way that they understand the world um and trying to take those ideas and tie them in with a, a really quite mechanically concrete and narratively concrete thing like the Feywild in D&D &D, and how do you merge those two things? Which, um, by the way, Little Lust Bean, <laughs> I don't know whether my answer is going to be helpful because it's really <laughs> tricky to do in the mundane places, but I love to show it in the mundane places. Um, I love to, one of my favorite things to do is I picked a place in my setting that I decided is um, very close on the border between what, what Tolkien called the perilous realms, right? Um, and... Uh -huh. 
Yeah. And, uh, and so you pick this place. I pick this place. And anytime my players go there, I've never told them, but anytime they go there, I roll a D20. And if it rolls a 20, if, if they get a, if, if that roll lands on a 20, um, they will end up in the Feywild. Um, and the place will still be the same, but it's like, it's like a, a slipping of reality, um, where they just end up in, in a slight offshoot of it where they don't quite know that they're in fairy until they start talking to people and it starts becoming um, clear. I, I also try to show that level, that kind of magic um, through mundanity in in a sort of any time my players are fighting something. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of creatures and things in D and D are you know inherently magical. It's just like, oh well, this is a magic beastie. Um, but I I often will sort of be like, does it need to be magic to work? Um, my my go to explanation is like, I feel like ghosts to some degree, have to be magic. Otherwise, they don't feel like ghosts. Um, so I let ghosts be magical, and they have this kind of uh, flavoring to them, this vague and evocative flavoring. Um, but then something like a giant, I don't think a giant needs to be magic to to feel like a giant. It just needs to be big, right? So giants aren't <laughs> magic. They're just a thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Those are some of my go-to ways to kind of reflect it. Well, I love that too, because there's a, first of all, I love what you said about like, what do we def just define as magic versus not magic? There's a very funny thing in D&D &D where they have beasts, where it's one thing where it's like, druids can talk to animals, but they can't talk to beasts. And beasts are things like griffins. And it's like, so by, so like, cosmologically griffins are not part of the natural wild order and it gets even weirder when they do stuff like and dinosaurs are beasts too and you're like hold on a second hold on a second <laughs> so dinosaurs which were real animals on the planet just not anymore are deemed fantastical because of the timeline on a not this world world let my druid ride a velociraptor. Why? What is they the problem? They eat, they poop, they lay eggs. Tell me what about that is not an animal. <laughs> so it, I totally agree where it's it, the idea of, um, the idea of like what is natural versus unnatural in D&D. &D, uh, that line is always going to be weird to draw. I just watched a funny interview today about Stephen Jay Gould, who's a famous biologist, who after studying fish for like 20 years, his big conclusion was there's no such thing as fish, um, which is a great, which is just a, a wonderful thing to be like 20 years and be like, actually, this whole thing is bullshit. <laughs> and, um but meaning that like, basically he was like, a salmon is more closely related to a moose than it is to a hagfish, like evolutionarily, right? So our whole conception of fish is just this kind of catch-all term for like stuff in the sea that's longer than it is it wide. I don't know, you know, like- in the water all the time. And <laughs> if it, it will drown if in the air and- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, precisely. Um, but not eels though, eels Not eels, that's different. Um, let me I'll, so so let me just say number one like fairy folklore is my favorite thing in the world. I, I wrote my whole uh, uh, senior thesis on fairy folklore. The uh, Feywild is like beautiful, and in the long running home game, I have this whole thing with that fairies that there's a relationship of a bunch of different beings that are like fairies, deities, the undead, yada yada, and it basically it came down to this like cataclysm in the world's background where all these different divinities had to decide how they were gonna to react to this cataclysm. Are you gonna fight it? Are you gonna to surrender to it? Are you gonna move away from it? Are you gonna do whatever else? And the fairies are basically spirits of nature that 
agreed to, or didn't agree to, but the, their path to addressing this huge natural catastrophe was to give up sort of like the authority of divinity and live in this kind of diminished, like we are spirits, we are living in this sort of liminal space between things. Liminality, um, that's it. That is yes. it. That's, that's the, if you can boil down the concept of fairies into one word, I feel like liminality is, is the one word that you have to use. Also, I don't know if, if enough people know how clever what you just said was in terms of, that's like, that's drawing directly from Celtic folklore and like Irish mythology and stuff, you know, when, when you've got like the Tuatha de Danon and the she and, you know, having to, to diminish and, and live yes. in this other realm which is kind of underground but it's kind of not underground and and the uh the the play between god fey ghost you know these sorts of very clever i like it a lot oh thank you uh it, but that folklore is such a huge part of my upbringing and something that i love very dearly but in terms of one of my favorite things about fairies is this whole idea of like the magical in the mundane right because you go to fairy folklore um you know, the, the, my whole thesis that I wrote was about how much of Irish Celtic mythology got adopted by the Catholic Church when it came to Ireland, right? Where Bridget, the goddess of fire, becomes Saint Bridget, whose aspect is the Trinity, even though she was a triple goddess. And uh, and that the fairies, it's very, it, you see this everywhere, that one of the problems, it happened with the Vikings too, one of the problems of converting people who have this sort of like polytheistic background is they will often accept the new God because it's like, hey, we got lots of gods. You guys, you have a God who- Why not? Why not? That seems great to me. And then how hard it is to get rid of that folklore of like, we're gonna keep a little nail up above the door for the fair folk. We're gonna leave some bread out on the thing. We're gonna leave, it's like it never- Tie a red ribbon on the crib of the newborn baby, you know? Yeah, and it never really goes away, which is a beautiful thing, right? Even as it's like diminished, it's like people hold on to those beliefs and hold on to those stories. And um, within that that Celtic folklore of running D&D games of how do you make Fae, how do you have these other world things, to me, the magic in the mundane is essential in fairy folklore telling. The Unsleeping City, which is the whole idea of like a setting in New York City, like a magical New York, is all about like, liminal spaces, the interplay between the dream world and the waking world. And, you know, there's this this feeling you get as a kid where you're looking around and, you know, uh, uh, we used to go down by these, these sort of rapids that were these little river to go swim in. And there were like fairy houses built all along the riverbed of just like little pile of acorns with some pine needles and stuff like that. And that unshakable feeling of like, oh, there is magic around every corner. Like, absolutely. Like, within the mundane, within all these things, um, uh, that feeling that, again, there is a coterminous reality with ours that we're always just one sleepy step on a walk home at the witching hour. You're always one moment away from it is like, uh, I don't know, it's, it's my favorite type of fantasy storytelling. Um, it's so good. I mean, in terms of uh, what's, well, I'm trying to think of something that's actually helpful for me to say for the <laughs> little lost bean. But I feel like when in doubt, if you want the mundane and the magic, because it is so intertwined, like you're saying, I, if when in doubt, transitional spaces, um, you know, staircases, doorways, um, ruins to an extent. The idea that you've got these often, it's the door left in the in the ruin, so you walk through the 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 you know gap in a stone wall. Transitional spaces. Uh, such an easy way to to make something feel magic in that kind of a sense to just be like 
plunk the magic there and it feels right. Um, yeah, I think that may, uh, yeah, liminal spaces is beautiful, powerful natural spaces is, is of course mm -hmm. really wonderful. And I think realizing too that nature does exist even in urban environments, like there are places, like there is still ecology in urban spaces. Um, I think that uh, there's also an element, it's interesting, right? There is so much to it of just like a vibe, if that makes sense. Like I feel like if you have the luxury and privilege to be able to travel, whether just locally in your town, me and my friends used to drive around at night when we were teenagers because we were dorks and we didn't drink, but it was just like a way to hang out at night. We're gonna drive around and go on an adventure. And you end up finding places, even as you're going on roads where it's like, yeah, these are just some houses or these are some buildings or whatever. And then you find a weird little old gas station tucked under an overpass. And you're like, have they ever seen a gas station under an overpass before? Is that something special? And click some feeling on, or you find some old abandoned warehouse in the woods yeah. on a gravel road. And you're like, this place isn't okay. This is, ooh, there's a bad feeling here. I feel it. <laughs> yeah, you just feel that feeling of yeah. like magic, you know? Yeah, it's it's like it reminds me of um, Bilbo's walking song in Fellowship of the Ring, where it's got those lines like, you know, someday you'll find a new road or a secret gate, and maybe you'll just, you know, you'll walk that way one day, and you'll find out what's down there, and it's all got this sort of magic, like the the magic of adventure and discovery. Yeah, a million percent. It's uh, uh yeah, yeah, discovery, right? There's something out there. Um, I love that a little lost bean. Well. I hope that you're not lost in the fairyland right now. Or if you are, if you are lost in fairyland and come back, don't, if you are told to come back and you're riding on a white horse and they say, don't get off the horse until a certain point, And then you do, and you age a thousand years, there's just read the fine print. The fairies, you want to be reading that fine print because they're going to get you every time. Um, uh, we'll move on to some other questions here. This next one comes to us from Queenie. Thanks Queenie. Um, how do you reward good role-playing without punishing shyer players or players who have a different style of playing? This is a great question, very fair-minded question. Mm, yes, yes. Uh, there's definitely that vibe, right? I actually had a conversation recently about this that I don't like to... Um, I have had people ask me before about like, Brennan, like you like role playing and you like storytelling. Why don't you use inspiration in your games? Why don't you award points of inspiration? Um, uh, the awesome Gabe Hicks gave a great piece of advice about this, but the, the um, but basically I was like, I feel nervous about rewarding good role playing with mechanical advantage in the game because then I fear that it becomes commentary when I don't award it, right? That like the absence of a, like if you give your, you know, if every time your kids do a good job at school, you give one uh, ice cream sandwich and then a kid comes home and then you get, you're like, okay, A's get one. And like an A minus gets one. And then a kid is like, I got a B plus. And you have to make that call of like, do I, and now it's like, oh, does the kid feel terrible for what's actually like a good grade? And then it's like, it's like, no, 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 no. Gotta stay impartial. We're not gonna like, we're not gonna do this like rewarding <laughs> thing. But I think within Queenie's question, there is that idea of like, um, if you, if you are, how do you reward players for good role playing? Um, without feeling like you are punishing a shyer player. Um, 
and I'm immediately thinking of my six PCs and how not a single one of them is shy. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, I, I have a group that is mostly friends from my acting degree. So sometimes it's like, please role play less. We need to move <laughs> on. Please, let's pull it back. Um, but no, I do, I do have at least two friends there. One of them did, um, you know, do acting with me in high school at my performing arts high school. And the other one, um, you know, has been around all of us acting all the time. So I don't think any of them are shy, but you know, a couple of them aren't super into the role playing aspect. Um, I think what I do, cause I'm similar. I don't, I don't do inspiration. Um, I think for me though, it's partly because when I am given inspiration as a player, I always forget that I have it. Um, so, so as a DM, naturally I forget to give it. Um, but I think part of it is that I've, I've taken notes on what each of my players seems to enjoy doing the most. And so rather than having like a, a very obvious signaled reward for you did good role play here, have a thing. Um, I, I, reward reward them in the sense of letting them do the things that they love doing i make sure that there is you know this this person loves to you know be a wild card and start a combat at an unexpected moment so i make sure that they have a moment where they can start a bar fight or something this person loves to negotiate with with npcs so make sure that there is some point of negotiation this person loves you know and and just trying to make sure that they all get to hit that thing that they want to do in order to feel like their fantasy is fulfilled um, yeah. I think that makes a ton of sense. And I also think too, within this question, um, that, well, there is a premise within the question that I don't want to say that I, um, I don't want to say that I disagree with it, uh, the, because I do understand where it comes from, but I will say that, that, that there is an assumption here, right? And the assumption is that you should be rewarding players for role-playing. I understand that there are certain game systems that mechanize incentives to role play. And if you are in a group where here because here's the here's the issue I have, right? If you're in a group of people that like role playing, you don't need to reward them for role playing. If they role play well, they just did the thing they liked. Like you don't need to incentivize me to get into character. That's the high I'm literally here chasing. Like it is a self-sustaining, the reward is the act itself, right? And then I would say, if you have a group of people that have fun at the game and their fun doesn't involve role-playing, I would say, well, if everyone's having fun, do you need to change the way people are playing? So these systems that create rewards for role-playing, I think are really only valid in this narrow slice of tables where you have a group of people that have all consented to wanting to role-play. They would like it if they role-played more, but they are struggling with getting there unless there is a system there to mechanize them remembering to do that. Right. Now, does that, am I saying that table doesn't exist? No, I think that table exists for sure. But I think that might be a narrower slice of people that are playing. And I would say if you're a dungeon master, you should check in because on the one hand, if your players are all having a ball role playing, they don't need a reward system for that. And on the other hand, if you're trying to like, you know, drag your players in the direction of role playing and they're like, we just like dungeon crawls, I might just check in with them and, and see about that because I think that like, again, some of these systems of rewards they're good if everyone has consent to them and everyone has buy into them. But I also wouldn't want to like, how do I put this? I wouldn't want to like trick your players into role playing, if that makes yeah. sense. Um, yeah. 
that so, but all that being said, I do think the question is is a very good one in terms of not punishing shyer players, which I totally totally agree with. And it's so good to be aware of that because you know I the number of people I've met who have said I don't want to play D and D because I'm too shy. I do not want to talk in an accent. I don't want to talk in character and none of those things and having to say, you don't have to like some DM, like if a DM is going to force you to put on an accent for your character, then that's not the group for you. Um, and, and trying to find examples to show people like you could just play, it'll be fine. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think as well. I suppose there is a little bit of that, you know, release the butterfly. And if it comes to you, then it truly was yours. Um, I, I've just realized I'm thinking about it. I do this, thing uh in my games the the one or two players who don't love to role play super directly and it feels like a performance and they don't want to do it i love having moments where i'm like focused on a character over here and i'm i'm dealing with them it's a one-on-one moment that the others are just going to be watching and letting i love table talk it makes me feel so comforted when these three over here while i'm dealing with this they've just started talking to each other they're joking around they're they're having their own and they're all talking in character or, or explaining what the characters are doing it's so fascinating to me because they don't come out of the game but it's just like oh you know cleric you're over here and you've discovered this thing and they're all just having their fun little side adventure in the shop or wherever they were um just just yeah. talking to one another and and just letting that happen i don't have to be involved in it i don't have to be a part of it but when i tune in and i realize that they're still in character that's that's the most joyous moment for me that's the role play that i love mm-hmm. and, and oh. you don't have to pull it forward you just let it be love it i love coming back to a scene where people are just doing their thing true story i used to run a campaign when i was in college for my friends and we would do like 18 hour 20 hour marathon sessions like playing from like 11 a.m to like 7 a.m and truly we were so voracious for D back in those days that sometimes i would go to sleep and the players wouldn't have gotten enough of a fill and so there was a side quest in that setting that was GMless, even though it was 3.5 D&D, because the players would just pull out these other characters. And I would be like, how do you guys play? There's no DM. And they're like, we're rogues planning a heist, and we haven't ever left the warehouse. <laughs> it was like, we don't need any external world stuff. It's just That's us having... amazing. It's so, so funny to me. Um, uh, uh... <laughs> Uh, very, very silly. Um, uh, cool. Uh, I think we have time for like one more question here, probably. It's gonna be a good one. I can feel it. I know. It's gonna be a good one. Uh, um, uh, we're gonna go find this. Um, uh, ooh, this is a very cool one from Queenie as well, actually. And I feel like with Dale here, our, our queen of, uh, homebrew, this is actually a perfect question for us to go out on. Um, Queenie asks, how do you go about making lair actions or legendary actions for monsters that would not normally have them? This is a laser-focused question, and I love it. This is very fun. Um, How would you go about making lair actions or legendary actions for monsters that do not normally have them? I love this question because I, I mean, a lot of people would hate it, but I, I very rarely use a direct stat block from the book. I'm like, all right, I'm making a griffin. What do I need? And I make it up on the fly. Um, but I have forever loved doing this thing. I think I first saw it on Reddit and then now uh, Matt Colville's Action Oriented Monsters uh, does something similar. But the idea of 
um, just having like, for me, a signature thing that, that this monster or this combat is going to be remembered for. I'm like, it's a griffin. What's the cool griffin thing that I want to have? And I want the griffin to swoop down and pick up one of the players and drop them. And that'll be like the thing that the players remember about this combat. Um, but I love building them into just reactions based on like, okay, when this creature gets hit by a ranged attack, giving it a really specific trigger. Um, when, when someone casts a, a spell, a targeted spell that they actually have to roll a d24 or something, you know, give it a really specific um, trigger and build things in that happen any time that thing happens. Um, and maybe they'll only happen once per encounter, but if you have like two or three of them, you end up with this really dramatic um, shifting sort of a combat with one or two moments that people like long after the minutia of, of rolling the dice is gone, they'll remember these moments, um, these sort of signature things that happen. So I, I rarely build them around the idea of, you know, like on initiative one or initiative 20, you know, this thing will happen with the yeah. lair. And I, I often make it a thing that the beast does rather than something that happens around them. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I love that. And I think that you hit on, first of all, I just want to say that like, as someone who's been playing this game for a long time, legendary actions and lair actions, I mean, specifically legendary actions, were the the one piece of design in 5e that made me go buy all the 5e books for the first. It, it is a game-changing piece of design because, you know, what you learn pretty quickly upon being a DM is the action economy is going to kill you. It's going to kill you. And these monsters, I don't care how cool your monster is, you know how long that monster is going to be alive? Probably four rounds. So your monster, yeah. if they have a normal action economy, it's going to do four things. And that can be, if it's lucky, and that can be so, so sad. You make this huge stat block, you got all these spells, ooh, big bad boy lich coming in. Blammo! Done. Four rounds. So, Particularly so... the spellcasters. If you're following like the strict rules as written spellcasting and they can only cast, you know, one spell and one cantrip every turn, they're dead. They're gonna <laughs> die. They're fucking toast. They're toast. With that legendary action stuff that came in, I was the, the things that are beautiful about it are not only that it makes legendary monsters actually able to take on a party of adventurers. Um and, and so you can like in, in 3.5, in addition to like that, like, yeah, you can make a big encounter out of fighting a dragon, but fundamentally what's going to happen is the dragon's going to have one big turn, maybe it drops somebody, and it's dead on the next turn, right? With really this, swingy. Really, really swingy, right? Big turns that matter a lot and get very, very swingy. And with legendary actions, what's beautiful about them also is they scale. So if you're a single high-level paladin, you have your lance, you're riding up on your horse you actually, the dragon is going to be less effective because it can only take its legendaries at the end of your turn. So it's cool because it allows these powerful monsters to kind of blowfish out as an adventuring party gets bigger, which is really useful to, to scale them. Like, the more of you there are, I actually get a little bit better, right? Um, and again, it's that variety. It's combat variety. I love it. If I see a monster that has different abilities in its actions, legendaries, and reactions, I go, oh, this is going to be a memorable, a memorable encounter because its actions will feel different. Its strategy will make it feel intelligent and frightening. Um, 
And I think homebrewing in this realm is so, so fun. Kalina, who was the shadow cat, this like high dexterity, um, shadow tabaxi warrior villain from one of our seasons in the show. Uh, spoilers for Fantasy High sophomore year. Um, uh, she, I gave her legendary reactions. So she could use multiple, re she had all these reactions that she could do to stuff. So she, it wasn't like she was a full Draco-lish or whatever, but it was like, if you trigger these abilities, she can do a tremendous number of them per round, right? Um, and uh, uh, with, the, with this question in particular of like, how do you go about making them for legendaries for monsters that would not normally have them? Look at the monster manual and you'll get some indication that the real big kahuna monsters have legendary actions that, that make them almost as effective on the PC's turns as they are on their own turn, right? They're still slightly better on their turn and in initiative, but those tail attacks, those claw attacks, their spell casting, especially if they can improvise, if they're, if you have those, those legendaries where it's like, I can blow all three legendary actions for this area of effect things centered on me, or I could be taking single shots that do less damage, but if the PCs are spread out, Legendary actions that allow you to play an enemy monster smarter and therefore make them a better villain. Um, what I would say is as you go down in power, you get some idea of how you can adjust your legendary actions if you want to add them to a monster that doesn't already have them, specifically like a less powerful monster. Because vampire, like, you know, Strahd has whatever, but a regular vampire still has legendary actions, but their legendary one of their legendary actions is a movement. It's not, not horrifying, but it makes them feel really scary. They can move on your turn. They have celerity. They're running around all over the combat, right? Uh, they can grapple you and drag you away. Um, you know, so if you were going to make an even lower level monster encounter, I'm trying to think of like, yeah, like if, if you want to add legendary actions to like a goblin war chief, right? Like the ways to do that that are fun are thinking like, the main thing that legendary actions do is make a fight memorable. So what's something that this monster should be able to do on a PC's turn that also, again, I feel like a big part of what legendary actions do as well is just make you able to have your bad guy do more stuff in the battle. <laughs> you know, like... For sure. <laughs> please, please let me do something. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And the idea, I think uh, one of the things I do if I'm scaling it down to something that's really not that, I was doing an owlbear the other day and I was like, oh, what's a cool thing I want the owlbear to be able to do? I want it to be able to give like a bear hug that like crushes a person. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you don't want it to go overboard. So one of the things I do is just make it something that only happens once in the battle, um, which is fine on the low end of things because, you know, whereas when you're playing you know, the big Draco Lich and you want them to to do a lot of stuff and for the battle to feel complex. Um, if you're fighting something on the lower end, you don't need it to be complex in order to be memorable. Um, and so you can still do that thing where you're like, here's your legendary action. It will happen once in this battle. Here's a different legendary action. It will happen once in this battle. And that is enough for those, for those three, four, five, maybe if you're lucky rounds, that that is enough to fill out the space. Um, 
yeah and i think also you know uh, that thing of like legendary actions you're so right total game changer but um playing with with all aspects of the action economy like we were talking about with the with the magic feeling different because yeah. it happens out of turn you can do that by making you know reactions are triggered by something um a legendary action happens at the end of the player's turn you could have ones that happen in the middle of a player's turn you could have ones that you know trigger here and then last throughout other players turns you know play around with the action economy and which bits of it you use you know a, a million percent and you can add other mechanics in there as well like i've played i played with a monster recently that had legendary actions and one of its legendary actions was a recharge ability so it had to do that roll a d6 and if it comes up five or six the ability recharges so one of its legendary actions was a, a like movement utility action and then had this other big damaging legendary action, but it had to recharge it. So it, it, what does that do? Like we were talking about in terms of what feeling do mechanics create, it creates this feeling of a monster that's building up to do a big thing and it's teleporting around the room while you're trying to grab it before it can do that. Yeah, um, that almost Dark Souls effective. You can feel it coming. Yes. I can feel it coming in the air tonight. It's about to hit. <laughs> uh, so I think that's a good thing too with legendaries to do and layer actions as well is creating variety, right? Layer action can do, if, if your bad guy monster is doing a lot of direct damage, maybe the layer action does a status effect, right? It creates like a po poison gas comes out and it's, if people are rolling con saves while a thing is doing direct damage. You have one legendary action that is like some kind of status effect spell. Maybe the other one is just a movement or a utility thing, or it's like a defensive capability. It, it has a legendary that allows it to auto heal, right? Um, uh, and again, it creates that great feel, because I think when PCs are in a legendary action fight, the vibe you want to get from them is that like crew on the bridge of a star strip of like, oh no, another problem, like some other, you want that like, oh, a, a new thing we have to worry about? Monsters are supposed to do one thing. It keeps uh, evolving, That yeah, it keeps things interesting. Yeah. Well, my goodness, an hour and a half, absolutely raced by Dale Kingsmill. It has been a pleasure and an honor to have you today. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. It's been uh, lovely talking. Uh, an absolute delight. Uh, 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 where can our fans of our show go to check out your awesome work? Where can they find you? Uh, you can find me mainly on YouTube at Monarchs Factory, as Brennan said. Um, and that is a play on Kingsmill, yes. I'm very <laughs> pleased that you recognize that. My sister actually came up with it. Uh, when I was trying to come up with a channel name. She's so proud every time someone works it out. Um, so that's my YouTube channel. That's where I mainly live and upload things. But you can also find me regularly on Twitter at, uh, at Daily Dale. Wonderful. Dale, thank you so much for being here today. And uh, for everyone watching at home, thank you so much for tuning in. We will catch you next time on Adventuring Academy. Farewell!